Good evening, everyone, and a very warm welcome to the LSC for this evening event with Professor Alison Kopnik. I am Sandra Jovcelovic. I'm Professor of Social Psychology here uh, in our Department of Psychological Behavioral Science, and I, it is my pleasure uh, to be here this evening to welcome Professor Gopnik to the LSC. Uh, Alison Gopnik is Professor of Psychology and Affiliate Professor of Philosophy of the University of uh, California at Berkeley. She is a recognized leading scholar on the study of learning and children's minds. Alison's Keep, uh, she keeps a very firm foot uh, in, in the academic world and a very firm foot in the public sphere, uh, working with leading newspapers and the me in media channels in the United States or around the world to enhance the public's understanding of her research topic. So I think it's incredibly fitting that she should be here at LSC uh, this evening participating in our series of public lectures, a space where we bring knowledge and academic insights uh, to a forum that is open and accessible to all. In her lecture this evening, Professor Gopnik will introduce us to a number of studies showing an apparent enigma, something that appears as a surprise. Young children are very good at reasoning Actually, they can learn abstract principles from data and infer unusual principles, very unusual or likely principles, even better than adults. So children can, t can think, and they are very good at it. She will be examining these findings in relation to a very broad range of ideas, and she will ask questions about the possible impact of age, social, economic status, and culture. So for those of you using Twitter this evening, please, the hashtag for today's event is LSC Psychology. And I would ask you to put your phones uh, on silent so as not disrupt the event. This evening's event is being recorded and will be hopefully be available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. <laughs> As usual, after the lecture, uh, there will be a chance for you to put your questions to Professor Gopnik. There will be also a book signing uh, taking place following the event, and copies of The Gardener and the Carpenter uh, will be available. What, um, they will be uh, on sale outside our venue. But for now, will you please join me in welcoming Alison Gopnik to the LSC to deliver her lecture entitled, Why Children Learn Better, The Evolution of Learning. Thank you so much, Sandra. And I'm, I'm so delighted to be here precisely because the LSE has always been this center of uh, interaction between the academic and the broader world. Um, so let me start this out by considering a question that hasn't been, uh, so the work I'm going to talk about is, uh, can be found in this book, The Gardener and the Carpenter, 
Um, but I'm also going to talk about some new work that's just come out. And I want to start out by considering a philosophical question that sort of has been surprisingly uninvestigated. And that question is, why is it that we have children at all? Um, not the obvious answer to that question, which presumably everybody here has, uh, has figured out. Um, but why is it that we have this extremely extended period of childhood? And it's one of the most distinctive things about us as human beings. Um, this, is a, um, this is a chimp on, in the Gombe, a seven-year-old chimp. And by the time chimps are seven, they're actually producing as much food as they're consuming. And even if you look in forager or hunter-gatherer cultures, that human children aren't doing that until they're 15. And my son is 28. And sometimes, even in our culture, even, even at 28, um, we're still writing tuition and rent checks. Um, now, in fact, if you imagine an Alpha Centauran biologist visiting uh, Earth 150,000 years ago and looking at these assorted, uh, apparently from the latest, the latest evidence, even more assorted and even more strange and even more variable varieties of primates that were around. And she wanted to say, what was it that made this particular primate, this particular Homo sapiens, different from all the rest? She actually probably wouldn't have pointed to things like culture or technology or theory of mind. Those are all things that we know that we share to some um, extent with our closest primate relatives. <laughs> but what, what would have really leaped out at her was this very distinctive life history that human beings have. So what would have really struck her was this very strange thing that our children are immature and dependent on us for twice as long as our closest primate relatives and for substantially longer than any other animal that we know about. Um, and she would have noticed this partly because it's so kind of evolutionarily paradoxical. Why do we have this very long period of vulnerability and dependence with so much extra investment and work that has to go into just keeping these uh, babies alive? But she would also have been really interested in this because assuming, as one assumes that in Alpha Centauri they had really good evolutionary biologists, um, she would have known that this kind of life history is very often something that's selected for in evolutionary history. So she would have known that life history, the way that an organism develops over time, is a really important biological variable. And she would have noticed how, how peculiar and strange our life history is. Um, as I said before, this life history has this kind of paradoxical quality because children are dependent on adults for so long and always have been. And in fact, there seem to be a whole set of adaptations that we also have to try to deal with these very immature babies. So for example, um, human beings are the, uh, oh, unlike their closest primate relatives, have male-female pair bonding and have parents, uh, fathers who are involved in caregiving as well as biological mothers. We sort of take that for granted, but in fact, only about 5% of mammals have pair bonding at all. It's actually a very unusual, uh, it's actually pretty unusual among mammals. And it seems to go along with taking, having a, a long period of dependence on the part of the young um, that requires this kind of extra paternal investment. That, by the way, is my son and my grandson. Um, um, also, unlike our other closest primate relatives, we have developed what um, 
the great anthropologist Sarah Hurdy calls alloparents. That means people who are not biological kin who are nevertheless involved in taking care of babies. And again, for as long as we've been around, uh, we seem to have had this alloparent strategy, and it makes us very different from any of our close primate relatives. Um, in fact, uh, there's a lovely recent study looking at uh, forager cultures that Barry um, Hewlett did, where he just looked at how many people breastfeed a baby in the course of a week. And what he discovered was the average was four different people would breastfeed. So there'd be four different nursing mothers who would breastfeed each individual baby. So not just the baby's own biological mother, but all of these other uh, uh, women in the group as well. Um, and again, this makes us quite different from, say, chimpanzees. And then the third, which is my personal favorite, is that we're the only... Um, if you look carefully in that picture, you can see that behind those three beautiful children, there's a grandmother lurking in the background. Um, uh, we're uh, one of the only um, animals that actually has females that are outliving their fertility, that has grandmothers. Um, and again, this isn't just because we have better nutrition. If you look in forager cultures, you also see women living to be in their 60s or 70s, 20 years after uh, they're no longer fertile. And again, this looks like a very paradoxical phenomenon. Why are women continuing to live for so long after the end of their fertility? In contrast, if you look at our closest primate relatives, chimpanzees, for example, um, even with very good nutrition, by the time chimpanzee females are 50 or so, when their fertility has ended, their lives are also ended. Interestingly, um, the only other case that we know of of this is actually killer whales. And for a long time, I would give this talk and say, and then except for killer whales, who knows what's going on with killer whales. Um, but I was just recently at a talk about cultural, uh, about comparative cognition, and someone came up and gave a talk about killer whales and said, of course, as all cetacean experts know, killer whales are the most cultural mammal on the face of the earth except for human beings. So it turns out that there may actually even be a relationship in killer whales between the existence of grandmothers, of these mothers who are uh, this extended uh, postmenopausal period, and the development of culture. And there's quite, been quite strong arguments in the human anthropology literature by people like Kristen Hawkes that, in fact, those grandmothers were what enabled us to have this very long period of childhood. In fact, she calls it the grandmother hypothesis, the idea that having the grandmothers um, was what enables us to have this long period of dependence. And there's actually very nice empirical studies that she's done that show that the thriving of two-year-olds, for example, depends more on the resources that grandmothers put in than the resources that mothers and fathers um, uh, contribute. Um, so we have this triple threat, these three really distinctive adaptations that came in this very short period where we were becoming human that enable us to have this long extended um, period of childhood. So all that suggests that there must be... Uh, oh, sorry. And uh, so all that suggests that there must be some kind of function to that childhood. Um, often when you make evolutionary claims, there's a so, sort of tendency to have the, the just story problem. But in this case, we actually also have good evidence from the fossil record that this extended immaturity actually happened during the time when we were becoming human. So if you look, this is a paper that even was comparing 
is comparing um, teeth, fossil teeth in Neanderthals and, uh, and fossil Homo sapiens. And by looking at the tooth records, you can figure out when the equivalent of you know, grown-up teeth came in. And it turns out that even compared to Neanderthals, Homo sapiens had a longer period of childhood, a longer period of immaturity. And you can use these fossil teeth records to actually track the fact that this long period of immaturity happened during the period of, uh, happened during the period of human evolution. Uh, okay, so then the question is, why? What? This looks so paradoxical. Why do we have this, why do we have this, this uh, long, expensive period that requires all this extra investment? from adults. What function might it be serving? Um, well, it turns out that if you look across, uh, and again, this is a kind of anti-just-so story, the sort of evidence you need to go beyond a just-so story in making an evolutionary argument. If you look across an incredibly wide range of different animals, not just primates, but mammals in general, not only placental, but marsupial mammals, not only marsupial mammals, but birds, you see this very strong relationship between the period of childhood and, roughly speaking, the intelligence of the adult animal. Or maybe a better way of putting it is between the length of the period of childhood and, um, and the degree to which the um, adult animal depends on learning. And the, the kind of poster animals for this relationship are not even uh, humans at all, not even mammals, but birds. And if you compare, for example, this is a New Caledonian crow. These are crows who live on a little island um, off of New Zealand. And these crows are, uh, these New Caledonian crows and crows and corvids and ravens in general are, turn out to be incredibly intelligent birds. And these New Caledonian crows can do things that are more sophisticated than the things that chimpanzees can do, for example. So this is a, a New Caledonian crow who's learned how to uh, bend a wire to Pull, make a hook to pull up this tube and, and find food. And New Caledonian crows have tool use abilities, as I say, that surpass those of our closest primate relatives. Um, compare that to our friend, the domestic chicken, and with apologies to any chicken lovers in the audience, um, this is an important, when, where I come from in Berkeley in California, you sort of have to worry about such things. Um, uh, chickens are basically as dumb as stumps. Um, so they're very, very, very good at pecking for grain, and they're not very good at doing much of anything else. Or maybe a better way of putting it is to say they have very specific computational abilities that are very well adjusted to their particular evolutionary niche. And interestingly, there are studies that show that newborn chicks already essentially have the same brains and the same kinds of cognitive abilities as fully grown, uh, fully grown chickens do. Um, and that's relevant because, in fact, part of the reason you can test this is because chicks are mature within a couple of weeks. Um, in contrast, uh, crows are fledglings for as long as a year, and these New Caledonian crows are fledglings for as long as two years, which is a very long time in the life of a bird. Um, so this doesn't just apply to crows and chickens. If you look across birds in general, you see this relationship between a dependence on learning and a long period of childhood. And of course, if you're thinking about human beings, we're even further out on this distribution. We completely depend on learning. We have by far the largest relative uh, brain size, and we have the longest period of childhood. All right, why would this be? Why would we see this relationship between a period of 
a long period of dependence and um, the capacity to learn about new environments. Well, if you actually look at what the birds, the crows, are doing in this period of childhood, um, you can get some clues. So in the wild, these amazing birds use their cognitive abilities to do things like the following. They'll they take pandanus palm leaves, so these, these palm leaves that grow on their particular island. They strip off the bottom uh, rank of leaves, which leaves little barbs. They nibble on the end of the palm until it's a sharp point. Then they take it by the wide end with their beaks. They find a termite hole. They stick the thing into the termite hole and agitate it so it agitates the termites. And then they pull it out and they have a termite shish kebab, basically. Um, and this happens in the particular environment for the crows in which these palms and termites thrive. In other environments, the crows do different things to deal with their particular environment. So they seem to have learned how to do this amazing thing. And what the young crows do is essentially screw this up. So what the young crows do in that period is they take the barbs off the top instead of taking them off the bottom, and they hold them by the thin end instead of the thick end, and the moms are sort of sitting there and tapping. I, fi I picture them as sort of tapping their feet and dropping termites into the, uh, into the children's mouths and writing more tuition checks, checks and rent checks. <laughs> um, uh, so what seems to happen, and now of course, it, so it looks as if what they're what the young ones are doing is trying and failing and trying and failing and failing to get termites. But of course, as we know in uh, Silicon Valley near where I am, um, failing fast and failing often is the recipe for learning. It's the recipe for innovation. It's by trying things, being willing to try things, willing to try new things, that you can actually end up having a sophisticated new skill like the skills that are involved in pandanus uh, palm leaves. So the sort of picture that I want to argue for is that this, at least one thing that this long early period of does is give you a protected period where you can learn about the environment around you in a very free, wide-ranging way. You can try unsuccessful strategies, for example, without having to worry about your immediate survival because your immediate survival is being taken care of by uh, adults. Um, so a way that I put this sometimes is that it's as if Babies and young children are the research and development division of the human species, and we're production and marketing. So they're the ones who just have this protected blue sky where they can think of all sorts of new ideas, and then we take the ideas that we explored when we were children and we put them to use to do all the things that we do as adults. Now, if that picture is right, you might expect to see real differences in the learning strategies that get used at various points in life history. And in fact, there's some neuroscience evidence that suggests that this is true. So this is a famous um, slide looking at the number of neural connections, the number of synapses um, that are produced at various stages of development. And what you can see is that uh, across the brain, there's an early period when many, many new connections are being formed. And then there's a kind of tipping point where the connections that have already been formed are strengthened, they're myelinated, they become more efficient and more effective. But ones that are weak are pruned. They actually disappear. So you have this young brain, this early brain, and this is five, so this is about the preschool, during the preschool period, that's 
very plastic, as neuroscientists say, very sensitive to the environment, very good at picking up information, not very good at doing anything, not very good at actually acting effectively. And then you have this older brain that's very efficient and effective, very good at actually doing things, not so good at changing in the light of new experience. And you can see that this unfolds differently for different parts of the brain. So in the visual cortex, for, for example, by the time babies are about one, their visual cortex has pretty, bit, pretty much been hardwired based on the experience that they've had. That's part of the reason why you have to correct visual problems early on in infancy. Um, if you look at the auditory uh, cortex that's responsible for language, it's around five that you start to see the tipping point. And that reflects the fact that it's very easy for children to learn second languages, for example, in this early period. It gets to be much harder as children um, get, get older and much harder for adults. And interestingly, this prefrontal part of the brain, this is sort of the executive office. This is the part responsible for things like long-term planning and action, focus, inhibition. It's actually the latest part of the brain to mature. And a point that we'll get back to later on, uh, Changes are still happening even during adolescence to that uh, frontal, uh, the frontal part of the brain. Now, often people talk about children and childhood in general as if children are sort of defective grown-ups. So they're grown-ups that are missing various bits that regular, they're creatures that are missing bits that regular grown-ups have. Um, so it's quite common, and people often talk about the fact that young children don't have the kind of executive function and planning and other kinds of abilities that, uh, that depend on this kind of um, uh, frontal control. And that's certainly true. It's part of the reason why they're so dependent, is that they can't do those kinds of things. But if you think about it, there's, again, something a bit evolutionarily paradoxical about that. If having a frontal lobe was so good for you, then you could just have a frontal lobe when you're born, and in fact animals like the chickens sort of have the equivalent of those executive functions from the time they're born. But if you're thinking about this trade-off between having a system, a brain that's primarily designed for learning new things versus a brain that's primarily designed to act effectively on the world, then a lack of inhibition and control might actually be an advantage if you're trying to just extract as much information as you possibly can uh, from your environment. And there's a bit of evidence in neuroscience that um, actually, for example, disrupting frontal cortex leads people to do better on creativity, divergent thinking kinds of tasks, like think of as many different uses as you can for a piece of Kleenex. Um, and there's even some evidence. Uh, another example is if you look at um, musicians who are improvising versus musicians who are playing to a score. When they improvise, there's actually deactivation of these uh, frontal control systems. Um, uh, there's also evidence that even in the time course of actually learning something, what you see is moments when frontal control is lifted in the course of learning. So there may be a real trade-off between, again, the kinds of skills that you need to be able to go out in the world and act effectively, and the kind you need if the agenda is just to try and learn as much, get as much information about a new environment as you can. And again, this neural architecture, this kind of life history neural architecture, is expensive. So this is one of my favorite, one of my favorite recent studies. This is a study that uh, uh, Christopher Kuzawa did in, in PNAS. And it, what he did was look at how many calories your brain uses at various stages of development. 
And as you may know, your brain is your brain is basically a Mac, so it's a cute but very expensive computing gadget. Um, so as you're sitting here right now, 20% of your calories are going to service your brain. I always think that like if you're thinking really deep, important thoughts, you should be using up more, but it doesn't seem to actually work that way. Um, uh, although it, maybe it does, because uh, so what Christopher did was see what how this developed over. Um, how this uh, happened over development, over life history. And what he discovered was that the uh, maximum period of the maximum amount of calorie uh, use by the brain is when you're four years old. So when you're four, 66% of your calories, as you're just sitting here now, are going to your brain, which is sort of amazing. I mean, I, I like this partly because it gives, fits my image of my, my four-year-old uh, grandson, Augustus, very well, which is that basically he's like, creature out of Doctor Who. He's this giant hungry brain with these little skinny limbs attached to it that basically goes around the world hypnotizing us all into being his slaves and just feeding his brain, you know, either feeding him the food that will make his brain go or feeding stuff into his brain. That's actually a pretty good picture of what Augie's like. Um, so again, the important point to, to make here is this is a very, having these children, having this, these creatures, um, these creatures have these big brains that are doing a lot of work, and it's a really expensive process, and while they're doing it, they're not actually contributing anything to uh, the, uh, the community at large. Um, why would you have this, what could be the ecological uh, trigger for this really distinctive uh, life history, for this life history with these really distinctive different periods doing different kinds of things. Well, you know, there's a lot of debate about what the context of human um, evolution is, but at least one idea is that uh, one of the triggers for human evolution was uh, climate variability. So this is a chart that shows not so much how warm or how cold the climate was, but how unpredictable it was, how variable it was. And you can see here's the evolution of us, of of homos, and you can see that the, the variability got to be much greater as we were evolving. And of course, as we developed our distinctively human capacities, our capacities to do things like change our environment or change our social circumstances, um, d create new social, new social environments, that variability just kept increasing and increasing and increasing in a, in a kind of co-evolutionary way. So one way you could think of this is, if you think about the chicken having, you know, the adaptive niche of grain pecking, for us, our adaptive niche is the unknown unknowns. That's really what we adapted to. We adapted to uh, environments that are sort of unpredictable and variable, where you don't necessarily know from one generation to the next what the environment is going to be like. Um, okay, so if this whole story that I've been telling, this whole evolutionary story is, is right, Again, what you might expect is that you would see um, very powerful learning devices in these children with these brains that are making all of these uh, connections. And here's where my empirical uh, work comes in. So in fact, over the last 30 years or so, and in particular over the last 15 years, there's been this enormous revolution in our understanding of learning in uh, babies and young children. So even 30 or 40 years ago when I started graduate school, 
the assumption was that babies and young children were irrational and illogical and restricted to the here and now, and even you know, great psychologists like Jean Piaget said that they were, babies were sensory motor, preschoolers were pre-operational. And what we've found over the last 30 years is that that's completely untrue, that the youngest children already know more and learn more than we ever would have thought. And over the past 15 years or so, we've actually started to have some computational accounts of what it is that they're doing when they learn. Um, and in particular, um, I call this the Theory Theory 2.0. Back in the 80s, I and other developmental psychologists started arguing for uh, what I called the Theory Theory, the idea that children are learning in a lot of the same ways that um, scientists are. My first book was called The Scientist in the Crib. Um, but what's happened over the last 15 years is that we've been able to be much more specific about what that science-like learning is like. And in particular, what we've been showing is that children are learning causal models from statistical data. They're extremely good at doing that in the same way that scientists are. And we can formally um, explain that by thinking about the children as constructing probabilistic generative models and updating them using Bayesian inference. I was just down at um, Google DeepMind uh, a day or two ago, and I don't think I'm violating my non-disclosure agreement by saying this. Um, that's what they're doing to try and um, get uh, systems that will uh, try and get systems that will actually be able to learn effectively artificially. But none of theirs are anything like as good as uh, two and three and four-year-old children. Um, and these are a couple of references that you can look at that uh, that. Um, that summarize this 15 years' worth of work by myself and others. Now, this might seem really strange because, after all, anyone who's ever given or taken a statistics class knows that um, adults are really bad at dealing with probabilities, and the behavioral economists um, have made a, a big uh, a point about this. But I think part of the reason for that is, so, so it seems sort of paradoxical. Why would we see children doing so well? And part of it is that we don't ask them stupid questions like whether they understand conditional probability. What we do is we actually give them patterns of data, as you'll see in a minute, and then we see if they can infer the right kind of causal properties and principles from that data. And what we've discovered most recently, as Sandra said, is not only are children really good at doing this, but at least in some contexts, they're actually better at doing it than adults are. And this was one of those nice kind of serendipitous discoveries. We started out asking the question about whether children could infer abstract causal framework principles, as philosophers of science say. So over the 15 years, we'd shown that children are very, very good at inferring specific relationships between specific causes and specific effects, whether You'll, as you'll see in a minute, whether this block makes this machine go, for example. But we were, what scientists do is not just work out specific causes and effects, but they work out these big general principles about how causality works in a particular domain. So um, the way that psycho psychology, psychological causation works is different from, say, the way that physical causation works, which is different from the way that biological causation works. And you kind of know that, even if you don't know exactly the details, you'll know that if you want a psychological explanation for something, you should be looking at things like beliefs and desires and emotions, whereas if you want a physical explanation, you should be looking at things like weight and gravity and um, physical interactions. 
Um, so we wanted to see if children could learn these abstract principles as well as the specifics. And as I said before, the way that we've done all of these studies is using this very, very simple device. This is the Blicket detector. And it's a box that lights up and uh, plays music when things that have blicketness get put onto the, the detector. And it's actually been this kind of very simple device that's enabled us to show how much children can learn. Because what we can do is we can show them all sorts of complicated statistical patterns relating the, uh, the blocks and the device. And then we, can, then we just ask them at the end, is this a blicket or not? Or we say to them, can you make the machine go? And they can show what they've learned about the causal structure of the machine. So you can all be participants in one of these experiments. Um, here's the experiment. We have a blicket detector, and we have three different kinds of blocks that can go in the detector. As you'll see in a minute, they're actually in the, in the actual experiment, they're different shapes. But for now, we'll just label them. So this is D. And D goes on the detector three times, and nothing happens. E goes on the detector, and nothing happens. D and F together go on the detector, and the machine lights up. D and F together go on the detector, and the machine lights up. So the question is, um, uh, is D a blicket? Okay. Is E a blicket? No? Okay. And is F a blicket? Okay. So as I would expect, the LSE audience is as smart as Berkeley undergraduates, um, but maybe not as smart as four-year-olds, because... Suppose you first saw this sequence of events. So you saw that A, B, and C go on the detector. A and B make the detector don't do anything. B and C don't do anything, but A and C make the detector go. Now you might think, wait a minute. When, I, when you just showed me that sequence before, I was assuming that either a block makes it go or a block doesn't make it go. Um, I'm assuming this kind of disjunctive or principle that each a cause it contributes independently to the effect. But now what you're showing me is this machine works in this really logically unusual way on this logically unusual abstract framework principle, which is that you need a combination. You need a conjunction of two um, causes to, make the, to, to bring about the effect. And there's quite a lot of evidence in the adult literature that adults just sort of assume as the default condition this kind of individual causation um, uh, model. There are whole theories about causal inference that are, that are based on that assumption. Um, but if you saw this sequence and then you went back to your, the original sequence that I showed you, you might think, oh, wait a minute, maybe I was wrong. Maybe D and F are both blickets. If this machine is the same kind of, works on the same kind of principle as the uh, conjunctive machine that I just showed you, then uh, and it's a sort of machine where you really need two blickets to make it go in combination, then it would make sense that actually D and F are both the blickets rather than E. Okay. So depending on the inference you've made about the general framework principle, you're going to have a different response in, uh, in, in this test condition. And what we did was we just did exactly the same experiment that I just did with you, but we did it with... Um, four-year-olds and Berkeley undergraduates. So what we did was we, um, we either trained, we gave a, had a training sequence with one set of blocks where we either said the obvious thing, yeah, look, individual blocks make the machine go, so A and C 
um, are both plicates and, uh, and B isn't, and you can see this from the various kinds of combinations as well as the individuals. Or we gave them the sequence that suggests that this machine works on this unusual general causal principle, this conjunctive principle. And then we gave them the test sequence that we showed you, and we said, is D obligate, is E obligate, is F obligate? And we also, because we were worried that maybe it was just something about how they were interpreting the word obligate, then we said, can you make the machine go? So if you've inferred the disjunctive principle that it's just a single object, then in this situation, what you should do is just put F on the machine, right, if you want it to go. If you've inferred the conjunctive principle, then you should put combinations of blocks on the machine if you want uh, to make the machine go. And let me actually, in fact, we did this in an even more complicated uh, way because of goddamn reviewer two. Um, and let me show you what this actually looks like. It's very important, again, for us to figure out which of these are blickets. So let's call this one triangle, okay? What should we call this one? Square. Square. And what should we call this one? Ball. Ball. Sounds good. Okay, so let's see what happens when we put triangle on the machine. Are you ready? Let's see. Look at that. The machine did not turn on. Let's see what happens when we put triangle on the machine again, okay? Look, the machine did not turn on. Now let's see what happens when we put triangle on the machine one more time, okay? Let's see. Look, the machine did not turn on. Now let's see what happens when we put square on the machine, okay? Look at that. The machine did not turn on. Okay. Now let's see what happens when we put triangle and ball on the machine together. Look at that. The machine turned on. Now let's see what happens when we put triangle, square, and ball all on the machine together. Are you ready? Let's see. Look at that! The machine turned on! Okay. Now let's see what happens when we put triangle and ball on the machine together. You ready? Let's see. Look! The machine turned on! So Scarlett, do you think that triangle is a blicket or not a blicket? A blicket. And do you think that square is a blicket or not a blicket? No. No. And do you think that ball is a blicket or not a blicket? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so Scarlett, which of these should we use to make my machine turn on? Those two? Yeah. Okay, so, so I like showing this video partly because as a developmental psychologist, I have a moral obligation to show cute children videos. Um, but I also like showing it because um, if you're like most audiences who see this, um, you were sort of thinking to yourself, am I the only person who had no idea what was going on in that video? It was like, I think it was like the circle went on and then the square went on and then I think it lit up, but maybe it didn't light up. Um, um, in fact, it's actually pretty hard to track that sequence of events even for an adult, but as you can see, for the four-year-old, this four-year-old little girl is paying a lot of attention, and she was in the conjunctive training condition, and she ends up with a conjunctive conclusion that it's actually the combination that you need to make the machine go. Um, and in fact, as you'll see in a minute, um, so what we did was, as I say, we did this with four-year-olds and with, um, and with um, uh, Berkeley undergraduates, 
And in the or, so what, what I'm going to show you is the percentage who say that D is obligate and that F is, uh, uh, sorry, what I'm going to show you is just the percentage who say that, yeah, you'd say that D is obligate and who say that, um, that F is obligate. Um, uh, we get exactly the same results if we look at their interventions, at whether they put one object on or multiple objects on, but in the interest of time, I won't go through those, that data. Okay, so when we do the or case where we train uh, children and adults that the obvious uh, framework principle is right, the or principle, then we see that both children and adults um, are discriminating. They say that F is obligate and D is not obligate. Um, and again, you know, just that very fact, if you're thinking that this is a four-year-old watching that sequence of evidence that you just saw and making the right kind of inference about it is, is kind of impressive. But even more impressively, when we give children um, and adults evidence for this unlikely hypothesis, this unlikely framework principle, here's what we find. So now the children are saying that D is obligate in the case of the conjunctive uh, um, training. So they're giving the right answer. They're inferring that there's a different general abstract principle in this case than there was in the previous case. But the Berkeley undergraduates are not. So the Berkeley undergraduates act as if the disjunctive principle applies in this case, even though they have evidence that uh, suggests that it doesn't actually apply in this case. So the children are actually doing a better job of inferring this abstract causal principle from the statistical evidence when it's an unusual one, when it's a non-obvious one, than the, um, than the adults. The adults are relying on their previous uh, set of assumptions. Yes? Is, is it possible also that the adults have another principle where they think they're obligate blockers, and so then they're going back to the disjunctive? So like in that first case, for example, it could be that you need both of these to operate, but it could right. also be that, that I think it was A or C blocks the other two from working. Well, I mean, it could be, I, I think the, it certainly could be that the adults have some other kind of justification for what's going on, but what's interesting is that they're discriminating, I mean, the, sorry, the, what's interesting is the children are discriminating between the two cases, so it isn't we purposely chose both the conjunctive versus the disjunctive to control for the fact that the children might just be more likely to say yes or to put things on the machine, because they're not, remember, they're all looking almost identical in the or case. So we don't know exactly what's going on with the adults, but what's interesting is that the adults aren't inferring the differential overhypothesis that the children are inferring. And it may be that they've got some of these kind of uh, what in philosophy of science we call, you know, kind of auxiliary hypotheses to try and explain this, um, but they're not saying, oh, maybe my general assumptions about this are wrong. Um, so one of the first things that we wanted to see is is this ability to infer these, and by the way, we've replicated this now with several different samples of both children and, uh, and adults. Um, so one thing we wanted to see is, is this just a um, weird phenomenon? Is this just something about uh, Berkeley preschoolers who have you know, parents who are scientists who are encouraging them to go to science museums? Or how might this unfold if we actually looked at different, um, at different socioeconomic status groups and, and cultures? Um, uh, so what we did first was we looked at children in Berkeley and Oakland um, Head Start programs. So these are children who are get into Head Start because they're um, below the poverty level. We also looked at their IQ and uh, executive function. And in fact, they have lower IQ and executive function scores than non-Head Start children. That's kind of uh, uh, commonly, uh, uh, commonly known. 
So the question is, would these children also have difficulty with these kind of causal inference tasks? And in fact, what we found is that the children look pretty much like the Berkeley non-head start. So here's the data that I was just showing you with the non-head start. This is actually a new sample of non-head start, just kids from privileged Berkeley preschools. And here are the Head Start children. And there's a little more noise for the Head Start children, but they're showing the same uh, general pattern. So they're differentiating between the two cases. And then we went and looked at um, children in Peru. And these are, the, these are children who are just sort of first-generation immigrants from the Andes or the Amazon who are building up uh, kind of pueblas in the outskirts of Peru. So I was just having a conversation with Sandra. These are the equivalent of Brazilian favelas. So these are children who are in the, um, in the outskirts of, um, of Peru. But on the other hand, and they, their average monthly income is about $1,200. On the other hand, these are children who are sending their, these are children who are being sent to uh, private schools in Peru, this chain of uh, schools that's supposed to serve this population. So these are children whose parents can, are very concerned about their future and are willing to invest a lot in them. Um, and we compared them to Peruvian undergraduates. And again, we found exactly the same pattern that we had found with the Berkeley preschoolers. In fact, if anything, the Peruvian children were differentiating more between the two cases than the uh, American um, children were, and the Peruvian adults looked indistinguishable from the um, uh, North American adults. Um, so this capacity to figure out unlikely circumstances, and sort of, again, interestingly, because we're, you know, even when we're using these kind of peculiar artifacts with walks and blickets and so forth, seems to be something that we see across SES and uh, across culture. How about um, change across development? So. What we shown, what we did in that original experiment was look at four-year-olds and adults. How does this unfold across development? And we were particularly interested in this because an obvious question that you might be asking is, is this really a matter of different learning strategies with different life histories, or is this primarily a matter of accumulated experience? So what you might say, if you're a good Bayesian, for example, you would say, well, look, as you're an adult, you get more and more information that this disjunctive uh, principle applies to causal cases. You see more and more disjunctive kinds of cases of causality and fewer conjunctive ones. So you develop a prior assumption that the most likely hypothesis is that this is disjunctive. And as Michael was saying, you maybe make up some explanation for why this might look as if it's an, um, an exception. Um, and again, from a Bayesian perspective, having that kind of more peaked prior, you should think that if you're more certain of the general principle, it should take more data for you to be willing to, to override it. Whereas if you're a kid and you haven't had very much experience, you have a flatter prior, as it were, you might think, well, you know, I'm more open to possibility. Um, and we think, as I'll show you in a minute, we think that is one of the factors that is leading to these life history um, changes. Um, but it's also possible that there's something about the very fact of life history, the very fact about being a preschooler or a, a school-aged child or an adolescent or an adult that is responsible for some of these differences. And the um, neuroscience um, data where, where these very distinctive changes at particular moments in development might suggest that that, would be, that might be true. Um, and we were particularly interested in looking at adolescents 
because again, the neuroscience literature suggests that adolescence is this period of both renewed plasticity and um, and a period of cons- consolidation and pruning. So there just seems to be a lot of activity in in in, uh, in adolescence. Um, so we thought that might be, uh, and no one has ever really done these cognitive development tasks with um, with adolescents. Um, so what we did was we just took exactly the experiment I just showed you, and uh, here's the same data that I just showed you, the pr- proportion of participants who are say, say that D is obligate, and this is the difference between the four-year-olds and the adults. And we did this with six-year-olds, nine-year-olds, and 12 to 14-year-olds. And here's what happens. The six-year-olds are already less flexible than the four-year-olds are. So they're more likely to go with the disjunctive hypothesis in the conjunctive case. The nine-year-olds look exactly like the six-year-olds. So in terms of that kind of accumulated experience hypothesis, at least the accumulated experience between six and 11 doesn't seem to be responsible for this change. But when you look at the 12 to 14-year-olds, they look almost exactly like the adults. So there's this big, there's no change here, but there's a significant change here, and this is actually not significant, the difference between the, the 12-year-olds and the adults. So it looks as if what's happening is that there are these really big tr- developmental transitions around uh, the transition to school age at around six and the transition, to, uh, the transition to adolescence. But in this case, the form they're taking is that the um, adolescents are looking like the adults. They're less... Uh, flexible than the school-aged children and the uh, and the preschoolers are. Um, now, of course, you know it's there's an interaction here between some of the maturational changes that are going on, say between five and six, and the maturational changes that are happening in adolescence, and the sort of social contextual changes that go with this. So, the children are in some ways in a different kind of environment, preschool and during school and pre-adolescent and um, and adolescent, but. We think those, in any case, what's happening is not just simply more years of seeing uh, causality. Um, and as I said before, we also did this with um, intervention. So this is, do you choose to, again, is this just about language? Do you choose to uh, activate the machine with multiple items or single items? And we see the same pattern. So again, the school-aged children look very similar to one another, and the, um, the adolescents look like the adults. So there seem to be these changes at these periods of developmental transition. Okay, so this, um, this task, this causal task is about physical causality. It's about how objects work. And it might be plausible that um, by the time you're an adolescent, your general principles about how the physical world works, you've pretty much figured out, and you don't really particularly want to change them. But what about the social world? So... One of the, the work that I did, again, back in the 80s when we first started working on the theory theory was about what's come to be called um, theory of mind, the idea that figuring out how other people work is just as important, maybe more important for humans than figuring out how physical objects work. And you can make exactly the same kinds of causal um, uh, models for psychological and social inference that you can make for physical inference. Again, as all the social scientists at the LSE will know as scientists. Um, But are children doing the same thing? Well, again, we started this work thinking that we wanted to look at um, social causal understanding. Um, uh, And again, we wanted to see whether children would be able to infer these abstract general principles about how people work 
as well as specifics about how people work. And we started out doing this by looking at a very old, well-established literature in social psychology. And this literature is about uh, whether you explain what someone does in terms of their long-lasting individual personality traits or in terms of the situation in which they find themselves. Um, and the finding that goes all the way back to the 1960s in social psychology is that at least Western adults have what's called a trait bias. So Western adults tend to think that people act because of their individual traits, even when the data suggests that people are acting because of the situation they find themselves in. And the great, you know, the classic experiment about this was, which also tells you how old this literature is, um, you take a room full of uh, students and you tell half of them, okay, you're going to write and read aloud an essay supporting Castro, and you're going to write and read aloud an essay opposing Castro, and everybody gets up and reads their essays. And then at the end of the exercise, you ask everyone in the room to rate how left-wing and right-wing you think your fellow students in the room are. And what you find is that people characteristically will say that the people who read the supporting the essay supporting Castro are more left-wing than the people who read the essay opposing Castro, even though everybody knows, they've all watched that the reason why they, you did that was because I told you to do it. Um, and this, this trait attribution can actually be a matter of life and death. So um, an interesting example is the, um, uh, during the uh, Abu Ghraib uh, scandals recently, the sort of first assumption that people in the West, journalists, for example, made was there was something about those torturers, people who tortured people, that was, you know, there's something wrong with them. They were psychopaths or they were sadists. And, and in fact, the data suggests that you put people in a situation of isolation and authority, and they'll do terrible things independently of their individual traits. So we wanted to see when these trait concepts appeared and how children learn the trait concepts. So what we did was we had a sort of human blicket detector. These are two little dolls, Sally and Josie. And there are two little toy, uh, little, um, I suppose these are actually toy toys. They're miniature toys, a skateboard and a scooter. And the children see different patterns of statistical patterns about, of co-variation between the person and the situation and the action. So for example, they'll see that Josie plays on the skateboard and Sally doesn't play on the skateboard. Um, and uh, then they see that Josie plays on the scooter and Sally doesn't play on the scooter. Um, and they see a statistical pattern of either approaches or avoidance of the, um, of the scooter. In fact, it's not deterministic, it's uh, probabilistic. Um, but they see that covariation um, works in two different ways. So in this case, the covariation you see is that the person covariates with the action independently of the, um, of the situation. Um, and if you were being a good scientist, what you should infer in this case is it's something about the person that's responsible for the action pattern. On the other hand, almost exactly the same situation, except now the action co-varies with the uh, situation, with the scooter versus the skateboard, rather than co-varying with the uh, person. And this is the case, this is like the Castro case, where you should be inferring that it's something about the situation, about the scooter or the skateboard that's leading to the action rather than something about the person. And then to my favorite part of this experiment, we have a control condition 
where it's actually confounded so that you're just seeing one doll on one toy and the other doll on the other toy. And if you were a good scientist, you don't really have enough data to draw a conclusion in this, uh, in this condition. Um, and then what we did was we just asked the children to explain why didn't Sally play on the scooter and why did Josie play on the scooter. And the children came up with lots of nice explanations. And they could be divided. Actually, interestingly, they didn't use that many kind of classic trait terms. But they did do internal kind of explanations, like she knows how to ride. Or one of their favorites was she's the big sister and she's the little sister. So these are kind of trait-like things. They vary across individuals. And they're consistent across different kinds of situations. Um, or they could give external explanations, like the scooter's fun or the skateboard's wobbling. Um, and as you'll see, so we did this first with um, four-year-olds and six-year-olds. And what we discovered was that the four-year-olds, as you'll see in a minute, were being good scientists. So if the data supported a situation attribution, they gave a situation explanation. If it supported an internal uh, explanation, they did, uh, gave an internal explanation. But the six-year-olds already showed a trait bias. So the six-year-olds were paying less attention to the data and were likely to say that it was because of something about Josie, even when the data suggested, as in the original experiment, that it was something about the scooter or the skateboard. Uh, so what we did was we then went and did this with uh, nine-year-olds, 10-year-olds, and 12-year-olds um, and adults. And here's the result. So here's the first experiment that I told you about. You can see the six-year-olds. So this is the situation. This is the number of situation attributions that they make across the three different conditions. So blue is where the data supports the idea that it's the situation. Um, red is where the data supports the idea that it's the person. And then black is the control condition, where you don't really have enough data. And what you can see is when the data supports the person, everybody says that it's due to the person. Um, but when the data actually supports the situation, we found something really interesting. So as I said, the six-year-olds have more of a trait bias than the four-year-olds. As you'd expect from the social psychology literature, the adults have even more of a trait bias than the six-year-olds. But when we looked at the adolescents, the adolescents are actually the most flexible learners in this circumstance. So in the person condition and in the control, they have, are very likely to say that this is due to the traits of the person. They're the most likely, actually, to say this is due to something about the person. But when you actually give them data that goes against their assumption, their general assumption about how people work, they're the most likely to override their original assumption. So in a social setting, as opposed to a um, physical setting, the adolescents are actually proving to be extremely plastic and flexible. And this fits both with the neuroscience data, which suggests that it's particularly social areas that are uh, showing this renewed plasticity in adolescents. And it also fits with the fact that adolescents are often at the cutting edge of social change. Um, um, and you can see that in a number of different um, kinds of circumstances. So, and of course, this also speaks to the question about is this accumulated experience or developmental change? Because in this case, I mean, the adolescents definitely have more accumulated experience than the six-year-olds, but they're actually being more flexible, which suggests that there might be something about the life history stage of adolescence that's leading to this, uh, this kind of flexibility. OK. Um, uh, and by the way, these data are coming out in a, an issue of, uh, of P. 
PNAS of Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, if you want more details. Um, so what we've shown is that there are these really kind of distinctive developmental differences at different stages of life history in how cognitively flexible um, children are. Um, I mentioned that we've been, for the last 15 years, doing this computational work trying to explain what might be the computations that children's brains are performing that are letting them learn so much. Um, can we explain these uh, developmental differences in computational terms? Um, so let me give you just a brief uh, potential explanation. As I said, we've been using ideas about Bayesian inference to explain what the children are doing. And any of you who know about Bayesian inference, the way basically the idea is you have a bunch of hypotheses and you get data, and then you pick the data that uh, you pick the hypothesis that has the highest probability given the data, and you can use Bayes rules and, and generative models to solve that problem. Um, and what we've done in this 15 years' worth of experiments is we've shown children as young as actually 18 months, here's two patterns of data, here's two hypotheses, choose which hypothesis you think is most likely given the data, and the children look like they're being good normative um, Bayesian um, in, um, inference engines. But of course, in real life, you don't just have two possible hypotheses. You have this incredible sort of indefinite range of possible hypotheses you could have about how the world works. And the downside of Bayesian inference is it's going to be impossible for any system, computational or human, to go through and think about every possible um, hypothesis and update it given the data. And the way that that problem gets solved in machine learning is through um, uh, processes called sampling. So the idea is you start out with this big hypothesis space, but so think about it as, you know, here's a big box full of hypotheses, and you're at one little place in this box. You can't go through and systematically test every hypothesis, but what you can do is randomly pick particular hypotheses from the space to test. And what sampling shows is that if you do that the right way, so partly randomly, but also respecting the probability distribution of the hypotheses, you can actually, in the long run, get to the right uh, Bayesian answer. And what we've done in a whole lot of um, experiments that we've done is to show that a whole lot, this could be a whole other talk, is to show that both adults and children seem to be doing something like this um, sampling uh, process. And I think this is kind of nice because the way that we show this is by showing that children are being variable. They'll say one thing one minute, they'll say another thing another minute. They'll have one hypothesis that looks obvious. Sometimes they'll say something that sounds completely crazy. Um, and traditionally, the people like Piaget noticed that about children and said, see, that shows how irrational they are. But if you're thinking about it from this sampling perspective, being variable and noisy and considering other alternatives is actually a good thing. That's actually what you have to do to solve this problem of the enormous um, hypothesis space. Um, so again, think about this as there's this big hypothesis space, this big box of hypotheses, and you're down at this part of the hypothesis space, and you need to decide, what should I test next? What would be a good thing to try? Um, well, it turns out that in machine learning and computation, there's two different ways that you can try to solve that problem of searching through the hypothesis space. So one thing that you could do is you could just make little variations to where you already are, to the ideas that you already have. So you could look pretty close to where you already are. Just make 
little tweaks to what you already believe. And then see when you make a little tweak to what you already believe, does that do a better job of accounting for the data? And you might also, if that was your strategy, say, I need a lot of data to even move away from this hypothesis that I currently have at all. It might take a lot of data to get you to move. And in machine learning, they think of this as being a low-temperature search. The analogy is, imagine that this box is full of air molecules instead of hypotheses. You're not moving very far, and it takes a lot of energy to move you. Um, alternatively, what you could do is you could bounce around that space. So you could try things that are completely crazy, that are way off, something that's way off here, that's really different from what you currently believe. And you could shift from one kind of really different hypothesis to another with just a little bit of data. And that's described as being a high-temperature search. So um, you're bouncing around this space as if it was a, uh, you had a heated-up system. And there's an intrinsic trade-off. There's no right answer about which way of searching is the right way to search. And the intrinsic trade-off is if you do the low-temperature search, you're likely to get a good enough solution pretty quickly, but you also are likely to get stuck in a kind of local minimum. So you're likely to not find, if there's a really good solution that's really different, that operates on a completely different abstract principle than the one that you're thinking about now, you'll never get to that part of this space. Um, on the other hand, if you do the high temperature search and you're thinking about all sorts of crazy, weird possibilities, you're you might find that good solution, but you're going to waste an awful lot of time thinking of weird, crazy possibilities instead of trying to find a quick, good enough solution. So this difference is a kind of classic difference between what neuroscientists and computer scientists talk about as um, a, an exploitation versus exploration problem. So one thing you can do is you can explore, you can look around, you can try and figure out answers. Um, but you, that's going to have costs if you actually you know, have a mastodon who's charging at you and you have to make a decision about what to do really quickly. Um, or you could use this, these quicker strategies that are more likely to be able to deal with the immediately charging mastodon but might not let you um, find more uh, uh, creative um, solutions. And the way that this gets solved in computer science is through something called simulated annealing. So the idea is you heat up the system, you start out with something that's very noisy, variable, moves around a lot, and then gradually you cool off and work out the details of a particular hypothesis. And it turns out that as, just as annealing in metallurgy makes uh, metals more robust, this is the most robust way of solving that problem. Um, so you start out not worrying too much about whether you're going to get the right answer or not, just looking around at a lot of different uh, varied possibilities, and then you narrow into the uh, more narrow range of hypotheses. So our slogan is that childhood is evolution's way of performing simulated annealing. So the idea is that this life history, this paradoxical life history, this really long period of protected immaturity that demands fathers and grandmothers and alloparents to take care of you helps you to resolve this trade-off between exploration and exploitation. It gives you this protected period when the whole agenda is to explore, and particularly to explore in this wide-ranging, high-temperature kind of way. Um, and then later on, when you're an adult, you're less exploratory, you're learning less, you're sticking more to the things that are actually going to solve the problems that you uh, Find. 
Um, so the idea is that there's a relationship between this extended life history and the very distinctive, powerful kinds of learning that we're seeing in even um, very young children. So let me end with um, a slide talking about my computational collaborators and, of course, the graduate students who do all the work um, and the funding agencies that are sort of, I think of these as being the equivalent of those parents who are sitting there and tapping their feet and dropping termites into your mouth. The NSF and the Bezos and McDonald Foundations are serving that function. So let me end there and see if people have questions. So can, can I just ask uh, before you, so we can have the microphone as this event is being recorded. Thank you so much. It was a really fabulous talk. Um, so I wanted to ask you if you could make a comment on how um, perhaps when children, we, I think everyone surely knows that children are more susceptible to the mystical, the magic, or the supernatural. Yeah. Yeah. So if you could just speak a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. so one of the, um, uh, again, I think this approach helps to explain what might otherwise seem some kind of contradictory things about children. So on the one hand, so one thing that everyone knows is that preschoolers especially are often off in this kind of magical, crazy pretend imagination kind of um, space and will say things that seem really strange. And the traditional wisdom from someone like Piaget was that was because children didn't understand the difference between reality and fantasy. But it turns out that's not true. Children are very good, actually, even preschoolers are very good at telling you, this is, a, this is an idea that's just imaginary, this is just pretend it's different from what's happening in real life. But they would kind of rather be in the pretend world than be in the real world. Um, and I think if you think about this kind of high temperature surge, the idea is you're trying out all these ideas. You're sort of brainstorming without really caring very much about whether this is the right idea in this particular situation. You're more concerned about is this a potentially profitable or fruitful idea than you are with the specifics. And that means even if it's an idea that looks like magic or, or something that seems very improbable or unlikely to begin with, you're still willing to consider it. And it's interesting, if you look at sort of six-year-olds, at least uh, anecdotally, one of the things that is most striking that happens when four-year-olds turn, when kids turn about six, is it suddenly bothers them when you say something that isn't true in a way that it didn't um, when they were, you know, six months before. So my Augie, who's now, uh, who's now five, spends a lot of his time saying, Grandma, is that true in real life? Is that real life, or is that just something that you made up, which is not something that he would have done um, six months ago? Yeah? Oh, sorry. Yeah? Uh, hello. Yes, my name's Gerard Hosier. Um, play, uh, instinctive play versus yeah. very formalized direct instruction. Yeah. Um, Oh, oh, does that um, dramatically change the children's approach to, say, probable, probabilistic mm -hmm. um, approaches as opposed to logical approaches? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And are the Peru did the Peruvian children, were they only exposed to informal play? Yeah. So um, I have a chapter about uh, play in the book. And 
Play is another good example of this kind of explore-exploit trade-off. So one thing that we know, again, across an incredibly wide range of different animals is that young animals play. That's one of the distinctive things about them. And yet it's always been kind of puzzling about what kind of function it is that this is serving, because the whole play by definition is something that you do when there isn't actually a useful outcome to, to what you're doing. And it's characteristic of children. And there's a whole line of research that we started and other people are are using showing that when children are playing, they're making these kinds of discoveries and that their play is designed to give them the right kind of information to, to make these kinds of discoveries, even though that activity isn't actually helping them to get any particular outcomes. Now, that raises the question about whether encouraging or discouraging children from playing would make them more or less likely to be able to find these uh, general principles. And part of the reason why we looked at the SES and Peruvian differences is there is some data that children who are in uh, situations with very restricted resources, say children who are poor, children who are under stress, on the one hand, or on the other hand, perhaps children who are in very pedagogical, direct instruction kinds of cases are less likely to do this kind of exploration. But I have to say, we found that at least the children in Peru are very good at doing this kind of exploration. But that may partly be exactly because they're not in as pedagogical a context. And there is some very nice evidence that putting children in a pedagogical context narrows the range of alternatives that they're, uh, that they're going to uh, use, at least in that particular problem. Now, we don't know whether that kind of makes them less exploratory overall or over the long run. There's a question there. Thank you very much for the illuminating lecture. Uh, I have read that those children who are exposed to a much larger vocabulary in their formative years of between age, ages one to five perform academically far superior to the less, uh, the mm -hmm. children who are exposed to less vocabulary. You know, uh, and I read that a lot in the underprivileged children's situation. The second part to my question, Professor, is that uh, I also read that the children develop the best mathematical skills when they are very, very small, like they say, up to the age of right. five. And so what can we do, if that is true, what can we do, uh, what is it that we need to do to develop those skills? Yeah. Thank so, you. So, um, so there's some debate in the sense that, I mean, part of the, part of the paradox is that um, if you want children to develop a specific ability or a specific skill, then it's a good idea to just train them for that specific ability and that specific skill. But that's a bit like the chickens, right? Um, you know, that's, that's a strategy that's going to make you very good at doing one thing, and the, the capacity that seems to be re the really distinctive human capacity is that you can get thrown into a brand new environment with things that you don't understand, and you can figure out some new way of coping with that environment. But that kind of ability for flexibility and creativity is much harder to measure than whether or not you're doing well on a, on a reading um, or math test, for, for example. Um, now, what seems to be true with both language and math is that the kind of foundational understanding is there in place very early on um, during, this, uh, during the preschool period. But I think there's actually an interesting debate about whether um, really emphasizing academic success at a very early age might not backfire in terms of this kind of general knowledge. So, for example, a famous example is in Finland, children are essentially in preschool till they're seven, so they're not learning how to read until they're seven. They're not getting formal mathematics instruction. 
But when you look at when they're eight or nine, they're actually doing better than the children in places like America where increasingly children, say, are learning how to read when they're in, uh, in preschool. So, and again, that's just what you'd predict given this kind of explore-exploit trade-off uh, uh, picture. So, you know, exploring, when I say that exploring has cost, it really does have cost. It really is true that if you're doing this, you're not going to be as good at actually solving specific problems and coming up with particular, uh, particular kinds of solutions. So it's not, I mean, I'm, uh, uh, you know, obviously pro-preschoolers and pro this kind of exploration, but the truth is you, I used to, you, this used to be part of my talk, but I'm not sure it works anymore. You know, you really don't want a four-year-old to be the president, right? Um, maybe this works even more than it used to. I don't like this because it's an unfair an unfair comparison to four-year-olds. Um, um, you know, you don't... Children are not very good at doing things like putting on their jackets and getting to school in the, in the morning, and, uh, um, and you, do have the, you do have a kind of trade-off between those skills. And I think it's an important question when you want children to do well academically um, about do you really just want them to do well on these particular tasks, or do you want to encourage this kind of more wide-ranging ability? And one thing to say is, you know, schooling is a very recent invention, over, only over the past 150 years or so. And you could argue that schooling was an invention that was designed to produce robots, literally, in the sense that it was designed to produce industrial skills which now can be, now can be mastered by robots. And that some of the things that the younger children are doing are actually closer to the skills that you need in, say, a, a high-tech uh, environment. And it, again, it may be no coincidence that in places like Google, you know, people have a day off where they can just play, or there's an encouragement of, uh, uh, of that kind of exploration. Um, yeah? Uh, okay, thank you very much for the lecture. Just wanted to ask you, what do you think, like, our dependence on technology nowadays with young children learning with iPads, iPhones, mm. do you think that's going to be a positive or detrimental thing to the development of learning yeah. for young kids? So, so I've, I have a chapter about this in the book, um, and, uh, and I, um, I said something in the Wall Street Journal column recently about every time I give a talk, someone asks me that question, and my fact checker said, are you sure every single time you give a talk, someone asks you that question? And I said, you know what? I am sure that every time I give the talk, so I have now have a, an extra data point for my, uh, uh, for my editor about that. Um, from this perspective, what you would say is that, again, the whole point of having this life history is that it enables us to deal with technological change, whether that technological change is digging tools or stone tools or um, agriculture, the development of agriculture or the development of what we now call technology. And one of the funny things about that word technology is technology means whatever was invented after you were born. So one of the things that I say in the book is, you know, the day before you were born is always Eden and the day after your children were born is always Mad Max. That seems to be a, a historical generalization. So I think the picture is each generation has to deal with the technology that appears in, this gen in, in each generation. And I actually think a main function for this kind of life history, these life history differences, may not be, I mean, four-year-olds aren't inventing new tools or new technologies, but they are adopting them in this incredibly intuitive, quick, 
deep, general way that is quite different from the way that adults adopt them. So I actually think that this kind of view makes sense out of the fact that we as adults having to deal with new technologies feel as if it's disruptive and it changes our attention and it has all these kind of negative consequences. And when we see our three-year-olds, they just do the things that are technological without even, um, without even thinking about it. So my, now, of course, every generation also has to deal with the positive and negative aspects of whatever the technology is that is the technology of their generation. But I think a lot of the fears are the result of the fact that we are in the situation of trying to deal with technological change as adults, and adults aren't really well designed to, do, to deal with that. Children are the ones who are really well designed uh, to deal with that. Um, I think a nice example of this is if you look at um, uh, touch and voice interfaces with computers, my, people my age, and I think even people younger, feel like, oh yeah, that's like a little gimmick, this new thing that we have in computers. You know, the basic way you do it is with a keyboard, but then there's this extra little, little piece about I can talk to my phone. For my four-year-old, the default condition is that you talk to devices, and that's the way they activate. And, um, and the idea that there's a keyboard is like this really weird, unwieldy thing that you can't quite figure out why grandma would do. Um, and I think that's exactly the sort of change that is mediated by these differences in, in explorer versus exploit. And particularly in this looking for big overarching principles that are different from the overarching principles of the previous uh, generation. I've got um, 17-year-old twins, mm -hmm. and one of them is an artist, and she's, she's in art school, and the other is more interested in geography and economics and so on. And I just see how at art school, the, the, my, my daughter gets so many opportunities to just explore everything, as you yeah. can imagine. Um, I kind of worry about the way that everyone else has been taught. Yeah. Well, you know, there's this idea now um, the, about using design thinking in general for a wide range of different kinds of uh, uh, a wide range of different kinds of tasks and in, in the sort of organizational psychology world so you know the organizational psychology world always seems to have something that seems like it's a bit of a, uh, a fashion but still I mean I think the idea that um, art is a context and in which we do this kind of exploration even as adults so even as adults I think when we're doing art, when we're doing science, when we're doing literature, we're essentially using these capacities that are designed for use by children. So one of my slogans is that it's not that children are little scientists, it's that scientists are big children, which always gets me a big round of applause when I give talks at places like Fermilab and uh, uh, Lawrence Berkeley Lab. But I actually think that's true. I think that a lot of the things that we... And it's interesting because we have the same kinds of tensions and paradoxes where people have this uh, impulse to say, well, okay, we all, we'll support science if you can show us that it will have a payoff, or we'll support art if you can show us that it will make us better or you know, do something good for us. And the whole point is that uh, when you're in this kind of explore mode, it's exactly when you're released from the, um, the, the requirements of having an immediate payoff that you can make these explorations, which do pay off in the long run, but you know, this kind of paradox about it's only by not worrying about whether they pay off that you can find the solutions that will end up having the biggest payoff over, over 
in the overarching case. And I think that's just like the issues about how much should we let children play in school versus how much do, should we um, get them to solve, master some specific skill. Thank you very much for the talk. Um, so this annealing metaphor is quite attractive, particularly at the individual level where you suggest it produces very robust outcomes. But it's also like a crazy expensive strategy as well, and that's right. suggested by some of the brain data um, that you presented earlier in the talk. I wonder if you could reconcile those strategies with these social learning strategies of mm -hmm. imitation, of mm -hmm. prestige biases mm -hmm. and competency biases. Um, and when we have these strategies that can allow us to kind of freeload solutions by mm -hmm. copying others who are better than us, right. why would we engage in these incredibly costly behaviours, um, particularly during childhood? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And I actually, this PNAS paper is in the context of thinking about cultural evolution. So... Um, I think part of what that the trouble with those kinds of social learning, of course, is that they can very rapidly put you in a local minimum, right? So if all you're doing is copying what everybody else is doing, then you won't get the innovation, which is the reason why it's worth doing that kind of cult social learning in the first place. So this this real question about how do you get in a how do you get both enough conformity so that you can get cultural evolution and enough innovation so that you don't get stuck in a uh, uh, local uh, minimum. And one idea, so think about something like, if you think about something like imitation, for example, um, you know, I see someone, say, doing something with a blicker detector. One thing I could do is I could just completely imitate what they do in every detail. Um, another thing I could do is I could just try and solve the problem as best I can with the knowledge that I have now. And a lot of the cultural evolution literature, the kind of imitation versus over-imitation, has been about when do animals or humans do one of those versus the other. But another thing that I could do is I could look at what they're doing and say, that might manifest a general principle that I could put to use in other situations. So if you think about the kids looking at the blicket detector when I've shown them the conjunctive case, what that might be saying to them is, oh, wait a minute, here's the way that these things work in general. Now I'm going to take that general idea and apply it in specific circumstances. And um, my husband has actually been writing a uh, history of, uh, of computer graphics. And when you look at the history of technology, what seems to happen over and over again is, you know, the myth we have is the scientist finds the big general overarching principle, and then the technologists take that overarching principle and put it to use. And that doesn't seem to be what happens. What happens is you've got, you know, five guys in garages, and each of them is making little tweaks to the technology that you already have, um, none of which quite works, but all of which are a little better. And then the next generation comes along and says, oh, no, wait a minute, that's all computation, or that's all rendering, or... You know, that's all cinema. Um, and then the next generation doesn't have to be the great geniuses who are sitting there in the, in the garages. The next generation can just be every kid who's growing up dealing with an iPhone who can say, oh, yeah, this works on touch activation. Um, so the idea is that having this kind of, the, the annealing could help, I think annealing could help solve this innovation versus imitation trade-off in the course of cultural learning, the same way that it could help to solve the explore-exploit tensions in the course of individual learning. And in fact, I think it may very well be that the context in which it evolved was exactly in that kind of 
cultural context. Because after all, you know, four-year-olds aren't typically thinking up brand new tools, but they are able to look at the landscape of innovation around them and see that it fits some big abstract general principle that even the innovators themselves may not recognize. That's, that's kind of the, the, um, the general... That's the general idea about how this fits in with cultural evolution. Well, I think we could continue <laughs> this conversation for a long time, it, but I'm afraid I have the tough job of stopping it. Uh, Alison, it has been wonderful listening to you. Thank you very much for coming. It's been a wonderful evening, a real intellectual pleasure, and everyone is invited to, uh, if you wish, there is Alison's latest book outside, and she will be signing copies here on the stage. So thank you very much for coming. Keep your eyes on our LSC public lecture series, Come Back to the School. And thank you, Alison, very much for a wonderful lecture. <laughs>